Welcome to all of you and those of you who are watching online, uh, live streaming as well as on demand. Uh, great, great, to, great to see you all here and uh, to have you join us in our service. Hey, before we open our Bibles and we jump into the passage, I want to talk about our membership class that's coming up uh, here really quickly in two weekends on September 19th. Our membership class is a one-hour kind of orientation, uh, kind of a final step in a process of becoming a member. First step is uh, going through our Story of God course, because our Story of God course, we want to make sure that all of our members are well biblically grounded, and we have four Story of God courses. So if you haven't done that yet, I want to encourage you to sign up for our Story of God course. Six weeks long, it's in your worship program as the major highlight on the back of the worship guide. Uh, but why, why membership? Uh, why is that important? So when I talk about membership, I always uh, like to, for the last 20 plus years, I, I always like to uh, begin with talking about membership by talking uh, about being, wanting to be a church that is at least as organized as the local Little League baseball team. So in Little League Baseball, as with other sports, uh, you sign up. You say, I want to be on the team. And then you go to practice, and you figure out what's your role going to be, what, what position you're going to play, and then you play that role. And to a great degree, that's how I think about membership. Membership is a way of knowing who is on the team, who, who really, who's, who's saying, I, I want to be on this team, and I, I want to join this team. So... That's, that's how we look at it, and we know that I think uh, if, you're consider if, if you don't know this, you maybe should wait on membership, but we know that what we're doing here each week is a little bit more important than Little League Baseball, or a lot more important, and so uh, it's important for us in our mission to know of those people who attend Five Oaks Who's saying, I want to be on the team and I want to do my part? It's important to us. I think it helps our mission. But it's important to you as well. I mean, there's study after study. Last time I talked about membership, I talked about these studies that show that making a commitment to something actually raises our happiness level. Uh, we oftentimes don't make commitments thinking, I want to leave all the options open. Making a commitment actually raises our happiness, and, and really in a, in a very real way, uh, not just with membership, this is, this is in life in general, in our Christian life, when we hold off making commitments that God is calling us to make, uh, moving in a particular direction, uh, what happens is we're sabotaging our own spiritual life, and we're kind of always leaving the options open. And so if you've taken story of God, I want to encourage you to seriously consider becoming a member of Five Oaks, saying, I want to be on the team, September 19th, put the word membership on your card. That doesn't sign you up per se. You, you'll get some information, some more information about membership, but it gives you an opportunity to sign up for it. So something to consider, maybe it's not time yet for that, get it. Uh, but if it is time in your life, uh, please seriously consider doing that. All right, because understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery, and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery. We open our Bibles every week, and I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, in your Bible, there is a table of contents. 
This is in the New Testament portion, the second portion of the Bible, and you can find it there, so it'll be towards the end of your Bible. We're using the NIV, the New International Version, so if you're using a tablet or smartphone. And if you're in here, uh, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those if you'd like so that you can follow along. So we're in week eight, the last week of our series uh, called Gospel Resilience, and it's been on Romans 5 through 8. We've planted ourselves, I think we've spent five weeks on Romans 8 of these eight weeks or so, or four or, four or five weeks, and, uh, and so today we, all, we bring it to a close with one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, maybe one of the most beautiful passages in all of literature uh, today. It's the kind of passage that as a pastor you come into and you would think, oh, oh I get to preach on this. It's not. It's like, oh, I hope I don't ruin it. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the feeling that, that you get as you go into this because it's, we could just read it and if we could just spend time thinking about it and leave and understand it, uh, that would be sufficient. So before we jump into the passage, let's pray for God to illuminate his word as we do every single week, uh, that God the Holy Spirit would speak to us and empower us to live his word. And this prayer is based on 2 Peter chapter 1, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for inviting us into a life with you. Through your power and our knowledge of you, we can know that you've given us everything we need. By your Holy Spirit, teach us as we look to your word, show us more of who you are, and remind us of your promises. Give us faith to believe that you are always working. Fill us with the light of your truth as we follow you and guide us and shine through us. Father, we, we lift up um, brothers and sisters uh, all over the world, and not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, but uh, people uh, in Afghanistan, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to be entering a really, really difficult time. Um, we think of our brothers and sisters in Haiti who are seeking to, and, and our missions partner there, who are seeking to minister in the midst of a lot of political turmoil, but also the aftermath of an earthquake, and they are making a difference. And pray that you would continue to give them the strength, the resources, everything they need to continue doing that. Think of our brothers and sisters in Cuba who are suffering and in great ways and still unable to meet face-to-face. -face. Keep the church strong in the midst of COVID and the economic collapse that has happened in that country. Uh, Father, there is uh, so much going on. Think of families flooded in Tennessee, families flooded in New York, uh, the people in New Orleans. There's so much pain, so much, so much going on. Father, I pray that we would uh, be in prayer and uh, just lifting these up to you. And uh, we trust you, Father, and, and, and we ask that you would bring relief and you would bring help. And we look forward to the day when you return, when Christ returns, and all things are made right. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, about two years ago, we were working through the book of Esther. Some of you, many of you were here when we did that. I shared a story that I want to share again as we close this uh, Gospel Resilience series. And so um, it was from a book by David Kinnaman. David Kinnaman was taking his daughter. He tells a story at the beginning of the book about taking his daughter, his oldest child, his daughter, to the university for her first year of college. So it's the first kind of 
going out of the nest uh, person, and he, it's about a seven-hour drive from where they live to the university where they were going. And he says about halfway through, he decided, okay, this is my last chance. I've got to download as much parental wisdom as I can into their lives, uh, into her life. And, uh, and so he started talking about everything from, you know, bank accounts to changing tires and all of that. But he said his number one concern was to talk about her spiritual life and how she could have a resilient faith while she was at the university. And he had some special concerns as a parent because of his own background and the things that, that uh, he had experienced. He said he, his wife, all of his siblings, and all of her siblings had gone to Christian colleges. And so there was a, a little bit more of a cushion to that uh, leaving the nest. But his daughter was studying something in genetics and there really wasn't a rigorous enough program in a Christian college, which he would have preferred for her in his, just their kind of family decision that they make. And uh, so she was going to a state university. It wasn't just any state university. It was UC Berkeley. And UC Berkeley, if you know anything about that, is not a bastion of Christianity. <laughs> it might be a, you know, like you get bashed for, uh, sometimes for having that kind of faith. It, it, I, I don't want to give it a Bad, uh, a bad name, but it's not the kind of place that's going to support your faith. Let's put it that way. It's not the kind of place that's going to, there's going to be a lot of cultural pushback on a Christian worldview. So he was concerned, but he wasn't just concerned because he was a father. He's concerned because of what he does for a living. He is the owner of the Barna Group. They are social researchers, and they're not just social researchers. They're like the Christian equivalent in terms of studying Christian trends and churches and all that. They're the Christian equivalent of Gallup. And, uh, and so he is sending off his daughter knowing all the statistics, all the realities. He had written a book a few years earlier that detailed the alarming rate at which churched young people, once they go off to college, once they become young adults, leave the faith altogether never to come back, at least in those young adults, like uh, where they watch them up to 28, uh, age 28, um, not knowing what's going to happen after that, but, but the research shows just how alarming it is, like 70%, this is just in general church kids of all kinds of churches, 70% walk away and about half of those come back uh, during those years. And so that's a, that's a pretty, pretty big number, and, uh, and he knows this, and he's written about it. And he calls our culture, our social environment, and he's not some kind of fundamentalist type guy. He just look, looks at our social environment, and he says it's insidiously faith-repellent. And he can document it. It's insidiously faith-repellent. And from his research, he says most families and most churches have not really given their uh, youth who are leaving the tools that they need and the perspectives to face the faith challenges that they are going to be facing in their lives. So this is it's all about resilience, right? So he set off to do this latest book that I referred to a couple of years ago uh, when we were doing the Esther series. And so in it, they interviewed... Uh, a large number of 18 to 28-year-olds who had, were, had vital, thriving relationship with Christ and were part of Christ's body, his church, and, uh, and they looked for commonalities. 
And so they found what they called five practices that contribute to a resilient faith. Five practices that contribute to a resilient faith. And he's very clear, and you need to hear this really clearly, it is not a formula. It's not like, if you do this, you know, it's like an experiment, you will always have this result. It doesn't work that way. Uh, but it, it's what he calls helpful guidelines. You can learn some helpful guidelines for the formation of the soul. Helpful guidelines for the formation of the soul. I'm going to show you all five practices where I'm referring to it because the first one really relates to our passage. But here they are, and this is the one we'll focus on today, but it's developing and experience a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus. In other words, those young adults, 18 to 28, their faith was vital because it was personal. It wasn't just something they did as a family. It was personal. It wasn't personal like I personally am a religious person. It was personal in that they had a relationship with Jesus. What goes into a relationship? Just think of what goes into a relationship, and that goes into a relationship with Jesus, because it is a relationship. Uh, the other ones were developing the muscles of a cultural discernment. In other words, they can read the messages behind the messages that are you know, kind of hitting us all the time, shaping us, forging meaningful inter. Uh, generational relationships in the church. You know, this is something we talk about all the time here, and it is so important to have those intergenerational relationships. By the way, uh, welcome to the kids who are in here for this family um, worship we uh, weekend. Uh, learning to connect the work we do with our faith, in other words, our vocation, what we do for work, uh, it impacts. We don't like uh, leave church, leave our faith, and go to work. It's like when we do our work well, we are working as unto the Lord. The, God wants us to do our work well. Even whatever your work is, whatever your work, even this job you hate, God wants you to do it well because it brings glory to him. So it's making that kind of connection and then engaging in serving others. We, we talked about a LifeWay study just a couple of weeks ago uh, that uh, discovered the same thing. But we're focusing on developing and experiencing a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus because it relates to the whole thing that we've been talking about, resilience, from Romans 5 through 8, the kind of thing that Paul has been talking about, but especially as we come to the very end of Romans chapter 8, it is really pressing into this whole idea of a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus. All of Romans 5 through 8 is about assurance. Paul is trying to give assurance to the Christians in Rome that, that God is it, that even though they will suffer, God has not abandoned them and that God loves them and that God has a plan for them that he is going to take them all the way to the point where in the new creation they're going to be glorified and share in his glory. And we get a piece of that, a glimpse of that now. God, he has been making that point. And being reassured of God's love is really important for our spiritual health and for our mental health. But that's not the end goal. It's not just a sense of reassurance. Paul's end goal in reassuring his readers of God's love is that we will love and relate to and exalt in and worship the one who is for us, as he's going to tell us, and loves us with a sacrificial love. Remember, Jesus said the most important commandment is that you love God. The Shema of Israel, that, that Deuteronomy, that Jewish people to this day pray, devout Jews pray to this day. Uh, is about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, um, and strength. Knowing we're so deeply loved is one of the keys to developing 
and experiencing a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus. You've got to know that God loves you to love him back. So today we're looking at five questions that help us to develop a more loving and enduring relationship with Jesus. Five questions. Now, you say five questions. They're five questions because they're five questions that Paul gives us. We're going to look at just straight the questions that Paul raises in this passage. They are, they are taking us to understand that God loves us so that we can respond in worship and we can respond uh, in, in love. Uh, there are more than five questions, but we're going to group them into five questions. So listen for the questions. Listen to the beauty of this. It's a family worship weekend. One of our Five Oaks uh, families, one of our Five Oaks kids is going to be reading our passage for us. Let's listen. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it, God, it is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. All right. Here's the first question that helps us develop a more loving and enduring relationship with Jesus um, that Paul gives us. It's verse 31. Uh, it says, What then? What then shall we say in response to all these things? What then shall we say? Now, this question is different from all the other ones, it kind of sets everything up. Uh, it kind of uh, leads into everything else that he's going to say, uh, and it puts you at a little bit of a deficit if you uh, don't know the passage or haven't read it in a long time or haven't been here for the rest of our series, uh, because he's, he's asking for a response to all these things. Uh, most scholars believe that all these things goes all the way back to chapter 5, with pieces also of earlier in the letter. Uh, but but it goes all the way back to chapter 5, definitely goes back to about verse, what, 18 or so on Romans chapter 8. I'm going to give you a quick summary, kind of as a reminder, or for those of you who maybe have missed, uh, to give you a sense of, uh, of what it is. Basically, it's this. We are now suffering. This is what Paul has been saying. This is how he starts in chapter 5. We suffer now in all kinds of ways, but this isn't all there is. This world is not all there is. There is a renewal coming that we can live in confident hope, in a confident anticipation of. And that confident anticipation of a renewal that's coming when Christ returns, when the whole creation is made right again, the whole new creation. We do our Story of God course. We start with creation. We end with new creation because that's the sweep of the whole story of God. And that new creation is always being played throughout the whole New Testament. It's like it's always living in light of that hope 
that confident anticipation of what's, what's coming. And so that's been the whole flow of this. And P- Paul is now calling for a response. The first question calls for a response. And it's not a response like an intellectual response. What shall we say to all this? Well, you know, kind of here's some equations about how we should live or here's some more theological thoughts about how we should live. It's, it's not. What happens is Paul models for us the response. And what he's doing is he's just breaking out into exuberant worship. That's the response that he's looking for, and he's modeling it for us. So N.T. Wright, the great British New Testament scholar, he says this about these verses. He says, these verses are full of a sustained excitement like a symphony entering its final moments and getting faster and faster toward the end with phrases taken from earlier parts of the music being whirled around in triumph. Learn to dance and sing for joy to celebrate the victory of God. This is really good. The end of Romans 8 deserves to be written in letters of fire on the living tablets of our hearts. If what we're going to be looking at here were like deep in our hearts, we wouldn't have to have whole series on re- resilience. Uh, Paul wouldn't have to write uh, chapters 5 through 8. Uh, it, it's meant to get this deep, deep into our hearts. Now, the question that Paul here, what are we going to say in response to this? Remind me of a book that uh, I heard in an interview of the author. I'm wanting to read it, but I've got, it's like in a long line. And it keeps getting pushed back farther and farther. But it's a, it's a book by Juliet Funt um, called A Minute to Think. Now, if, you, uh, if you're old enough, you might remember the show uh, Candid Camera. <clears throat> it's, it's his daughter. Uh, so the, all the old people, oh, all the people are like, Candid what? Um, but anyways, it's his daughter. And, and the book is a business book, productivity, leadership type book. And it speaks about the importance of making time throughout your day, especially at work, it's what it's talking to, and the work that you do, making time throughout your day to think. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a page, you know, imagine a page of the Bible where there is no white space. See all the white space around, in between the columns, there's white space between the lines. Imagine where there is no space between one line and another, where it goes all the way to the end of the page, runs from one side of the page, and just, it's just covered with ink. Uh, you, can't, you can't read something. You can read it, but it's so difficult. It would be exhausting. Imagine reading an entire book like that. You would just be, you know, it would be exhausting. That's how we treat our lives, is we, we get rid of all the white space. We're just going, 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 going. Now, she's talking about this for business, but this is true for our lives with God, which is an everyday, all day, every moment type of thing, to stop and think. Paul is taking a minute to think, and he's inviting us to do the same. Okay, the sweep from Romans 5 through 8, and he is, he's saying, stop, stop, think. Think about all that we've been talking about and its impact. Now, part of what he's been saying with all of this is, is he's been giving a, a kind of a really... Uh, inspiring theological argument about suffering and the hope that we have, right? He's been, he's been building on this. And when he gets to verse 28, 
before this passage that Pastor Jonathan preached on last week, he makes this audacious claim. And the claim is that everything, all the suffering that you're experiencing, as well as the good stuff, everything in your life, it's all, God is going to take that and he is going to work it for the good of those who love God, his people, those that are called according to his purpose. He's going to take all of that. He's made this audacious claim. And then he adds on top of that what's called this golden chain, uh, where, I mean, there's theological perspectives that come from all different kind of perspectives, but don't miss the emphasis that Paul adds, whatever your theological perspective is on this. But Paul says, way back before the beginning of time, God knew you. And when he knew you, he called you. And when he, called, or when he knew you, he predestined that, you would, that what he would start in you would finish. You would be shaped into the image of God's Son, which is a way of saying you, the end goal is that you are once again going to reflect the image of God and go back to the place where we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that God created us for that is like the entire creation is groaning and going, when is humanity going to sober up? And, and get into its right place so everything can be made right again. God is going to make that happen. And because he's going to make that happen, he's going to make us right with him, his people, that he foreknew and that he predestined to be conformed to the image of son. And he, he then justified us, made us right with him, so that we would then eventually it gets to we're glorified. And we already experience that. We get a glimpse of that. That's a, a very tight theological argument that has led to all kinds of like big gigantic debates but now he's saying let's respond to that that God has this plan where he's going to take everything and he's going to turn it for good let's respond to that what are you going to what are you going to what are you going to do with that how, how is that going to shape your life so that first question helps us to develop a more loving and and enduring relationship with Jesus by calling us to think and respond and what we're going to see is it's to reflect and to worship the God who has done this. Okay, here's the second question. Now, these other questions are different in, 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 in form. So the next one's the very next verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? Which I loved our reader said, who can be against us? <laughs> you know, captured that, that moment really, really well. Um, God is for us, his people. People who put their faith in him, his people. That's, that's really what it's talking about. That God is for us. He's speaking to the church. God is for us. God is for you. God is for you. This doesn't mean, really important um, to remember, this doesn't mean that we get our way. This means that God gets his way for our good. Because God's way is for our good, all right? So it, you, when you get your way... It doesn't always turn out very well, does it? Especially when you know your way is not God's way. It doesn't end very well. But God gets his way for our good. Now, under, <clears throat> understanding that God is for you and that he loves you, it's, it's just fundamental to a relationship. It's very fundamental. So there's a, a saying from a, a former pastor and author from another generation called A.W. Tozier and he, uh, 
he had this thing that he was famous for saying, I think probably his quote that's most famous. He says, what comes into your minds when we think about God, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let's leave it there for a moment. It's a little bit of a mind twister. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, there's a variation on this uh, that I've shared before that I read in a book that I can't even, I have no idea what the book is, and I'm sure I'm not getting the quote exactly right, but this is the idea in it. What comes into your mind, I'll just turn it into a question. What comes into your mind when you think about God, what God thinks about you? When you think of God contemplating you, what comes to your mind? Paul is saying, this is what I want you to come to your mind. God is for you. When God is looking at you, he is, when he thinks about you, he thinks about his great plans for you. That's what Paul is telling us here. Is that how you think about God? Or when you think about God thinking about you, when you think about God thinking about you, do you think he's irritated with you? Do you think he's frustrated with you? Do you think he's angry at you for all the things that you do wrong? When you think about what God thinks about you, do you think he's apathetic? He's like, I don't think he thinks about me. Do you think he's indifferent? Like, "Mm, just another human being. Do you think that way? You can't have a relationship, a loving relationship with a God that you think thinks about you that way. That's why this passage is so important. That's why it's driving home. God is for you because if you don't get that, you're not going to draw close to him. You're not, you're not going to be drawn to him. But God is for you. God is big enough to actually think about you. He's that big. Don't shrink him down. Like, how can, how can he think about me? I'm just one and billions of people. He is that big that he thinks about you, and he is for you. That's going to help you have an intimate, loving relationship with him. Here's the third question. Um, Yeah, so here here it is. It's a a little complicated, but, but listen. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with his son graciously give us all things. How, how will he not? Now, the way that Paul states this, most scholars who study this say this is almost certainly an allusion to something he's talked about earlier in the letter. It's coming back to the story of Abraham that runs through all. You, you, you can't really understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. You can't, certainly can't understand the New Testament without knowing the story of Abraham and, and what happened with Abraham, and it's kind of the midpoint of Abraham's story. Uh, God gives him a son, and in his old age, and his son is going to be, it's from his son that a great nation is going to come, the, the people of Israel. But his son has grown up now, probably in his late teens, and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son. I mean, God puts it that way. I want you to take your son, your only son. And sacrifice him. Now it's a it's a story that runs against our sensibilities, especially because we know that God is not for human sacrifice, and because we don't live in a world where there's sacrifice. In, in, in Abraham's world, without going into any detail, it made sense. It's the firstborn. 
He's the one that's going to pay for the family sin. It's the way it's done. And he's just like, we'll see what God is going to do. Hebrews tells us God's going to have to raise him because <laughs> he's, he's the one. You know, I can't have any more kids. I'm like into my hundreds now, okay? So I'm like over 100 years old. And so he takes his son, and his son has to cooperate. He's not, uh, his dad is old. He's, he's, he's like 17, 18, 19 years old. He takes his son, maybe in his early 20s, takes his son, and he takes a knife, and he's about to plunge it. And just as he's about to plunge the knife into his son, God says, stop. And then points Abraham over to a thicket where a ram has been caught. And the ram is sacrificed instead of the son. But here's, here's in the sweep of Scripture what this is pointing to. There comes a point where God's son, his only son, is going to be put on a cross, and as they're about to nail the, the nails into his hands and feet, nobody cries, stop. Nobody cries, stop. He didn't spare his own son. And if he didn't spare his own son, for you, it says, for you, he died as a sacrifice for you. If he didn't spare his own son to give him as a sacrifice for your sins, to pay the price that you deserve to pay, why would he hold back? Why would he hold back from anything else? It just doesn't make any sense. Now again, um, these are not like hold back from all the goodies that I want, all the things that I want. It's the good. Why would he hold back from the good that he has planned for you? You're suffering. You're going through difficulties. Why do you think that that God is going to hold back from what's, what's ahead for you when he has been so willing to give his son, his only son. Now, uh, just remember, his son was completely working in conjunction with the father. It's not like the father gave a reluctant son. The son, Jesus, gave himself up, the scripture says too. So it's always important to remember that. Fourth question that helps us develop a more loving and enduring relationship with Jesus is, a, I think, a combination of a couple of questions in the text, but is, who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen, and who is the one who condemns us? It's basically one idea there. Who is going to condemn us? Now, this brings us back, of course, to the beginning of the chapter, where it says at the very beginning, after um, Paul says, you know, I deserve condemnation. I, I fail in, in so many ways. And, uh, and he, he, he says, well, you know, thank God for Jesus. And then he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's just reminding, he's, you know, the symphony. Here's the strand that, you know, he's just grabbing and bringing back. And he's saying, no. Um, so look at verse 33 um, and verse 34 to see Paul actually asking this question. He says, um, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. That means makes us right with him. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one condemns. All right. Uh, we are guilty in the scripture. Biblical worldview, we are, are guilty, and we go deeply into this in our story of God, of course. We are guilty and deserving of condemnation. We like to minimize our sin and the scope and the breadth, just how far our sins go. We like to do that. God sees it all, sees all the effects. We 
are deserving of condemnation, but God has made us right with him through what Jesus did on the cross. Verse 34 introduces an interesting wrinkle. Um, I think to save time, I'm not going to go into it, but it basically says Christ right now is interceding for us. And it's not like God is the bad cop and Jesus is the good cop. They are working together, each living out the roles, but Christ is interceding for us. Now, the beauty of what he's saying here about no condemnation is lost on a lot of people who profess to be Christians today. Not just today, in any age. It's, it's, the beauty of this is lost. It's like, this is a nice passage for a lot of Christians instead of, this is, this is such a great reminder of what has happened and the, the incredibly unbelievable thing that has happened. And, and to kind of capture that, let me, let me, um, let me say why, why it's lost. I heard an interview a while back with uh, where this guy, whose name I don't remember, but I wrote down, unfortunately, I wrote down what he said, but not what he, uh, who, who it was. Um, but this is basically what he said. Too many church people think of the church as a club of good people telling other people how to live. We're the good guys. You know, we're here, right? We're the good guys. God loves us. He says what we need to see is that we are actually a league of the guilty. Now, we're forgiven. That's good. But I'm going to need God's grace like this afternoon. Again. <laughs> uh, maybe even before I leave, depending on what some of you say to me. <laughs> you know. I, I'm going to need God's grace uh, for the stuff the ugliness that is still there and that works its way out. God is still working in me. We are the league of the guilty, forgiven, living under God's grace. Even now, we're living under God's grace. We need God's grace. We wouldn't last without God's grace. When we don't get that, when we think, well, we're the better people, and we oftentimes do, we're like the older brother of the prodigal, that story is about two prodigals. The older brother stayed in church every week. He's lost more than the younger brother because his heart's not in it. He, he hasn't lived to the one, number one thing, to love the father. He's there because it's the right thing to do. There's not love in his heart. So um, we're the league of the guilty. One last question that helps us love God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. That's how it, this last section opens. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now here, <clears throat> we're gonna, I'm going to read part, because the rest of it answers that question, but I'm going to read a little part, and then I want to stop for a moment. Um, beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Why would those separate us from the love of Christ? We'll get to that in a moment. And why does he do this? Why does he quote this verse? As it is written, it's from Scripture, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. We'll stop right there. What's going on there? Um, I want to explain what's going on because I really think it brings a greater richness to this entire passage. <clears throat> so... Um, 
it seems out of place and it doesn't even seem to make logical sense. Why would you say that suffering and hardship and trouble would separate you from the love of Christ? The verse that's quoted gives you the answer to that. And so there was a, a method that, it wasn't named this until later by later rabbis. It was, it's called remez. It's a, it's a method of teaching. Uh, but it was used by Jesus. It was used by other uh, Jewish scholars, uh, Jew, people who studied uh, the word of God and taught it. And so in this, this remez method, what happens is you, you quote a verse in answer to a question or as part of an answer to a question, and you expect the audience to go, think of the rest, go, oh. So it's actually a way of getting you to stop and think, and it was used constantly. Jesus does the same thing, uses the same kind of method even before it was called uh, uh, remez. And so what's happening? What would they stop and think about? Well, they would think, this is from that psalm, it's, it's, it's one of just a handful of psalms that doesn't end well. It's one of many psalms that are complaint psalms. They're called, they're, that's how they're described. They're complaint psalms. They're psalms where the psalmist is shaking their fist at God and saying, how in the world, what is the matter with you? And the things that the psalmist say in these complaint psalms is shocking at times, and it's in Scripture, and it's the prayer book. It's our prayer book. It's teaching us how to pray, <laughs> telling us this is how you should pray. When you just, like, you, know, you can shake your hand, you can shake your hand at God, and you can say, how in the world? What in the world are you up to? All right? So the hearer is supposed to think what is going on in that psalm, and it's a psalm where it's a complaint psalm, like, and the thing that the complaint is, is different than a lot of other psalms. The complaint is, the people of Israel right now, in our time right now, the psalmist is saying, we're living for you. We're actually faithful. There have been groups of Israelites who have been very unfaithful. But we are faithful to you. And you're still letting our enemies, like, wipe us out. Why would you do that? That's, that's what's going on. So, and, and it's only a, a handful, maybe two or three of the complaint psalms, that doesn't end well. In other words, it doesn't end happy. A lot of the other complaint psalms, you know, kind of like, oh, then I thought about, you know, that's how they end. And it's, you know, then I thought about this and oh, I praise you, God, you know, this kind of thing. This one does not end that way. So this is how this complaint psalm goes. Yet for your sake, this is the party quotes, yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord. Okay, I didn't read that right. Yeah. Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and our oppression? What's going on? What can happen is, if this is how it ends, which is how some of our prayers should end, but we continue on that road. What happens is, is we believe God has, he no longer loves us. He doesn't care about us. And the proof is our suffering. And from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8, Paul has been saying suffering is proof of nothing. But he doesn't say this here. He says it earlier. Suffering is proof of your, 
the broken downness of your whole world, of you, you're adding to it. This is, this is why we suffer, okay? He's saying suffering is not proof that God doesn't love you. It's not. And that's why he's saying trouble and all of that. It just doesn't... So Paul is saying, your, um, next slide, your suffering doesn't mean God doesn't love you or that he has abandoned you. Um, that's been the whole sweep of this passage. Now for the rest of the answer, verse 37. No! He's almost answering the psalmist. You could probably put that into a question. There are no punctuation marks. In, in Paul's day, punctuation marks hadn't been created. Okay, so you have to figure out from the context. And it could very well, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered to be sheep, slaughtered. No, Paul says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how much he loves you. This is how much he loves you. So he's modeling for us. The sweep of Romans up to this point, this like high point in the whole letter of Romans to the Roman Christians. He's saying, this is how much God loves his people. He has made you right with him. Whatever you're experiencing right now is not proof that he doesn't love you. He loves you, and he has this incredible long-term plan. This life we're experiencing now is not all there is. He loves you. He's got a plan for you. Don't leave him. And he's inviting you into a loving relationship. He loves you. And he, from the beginning of the world, from the beginning of Genesis 1, God created humanity to enter into a loving relationship that he had within himself in the Trinity for all of creation, where the three persons of God are loving each other for all of eternity and delighting in, in each other, glorifying in each other, which partially means to delight in each other. And we're being invited into a relationship like that. And he says, if you've been invited into that relationship and you've responded in faith, there's no power in the entire universe that is going to separate you from that kind of love. So let's read the passages we have uh, for the last few weeks. All in one sweep. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies who then is the one who condemns us? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's begin our response to what God has said through his word. You'll take communion, which by the way, there is a, it's easier to open the bread before the cup. <clears throat> it says in this passage, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his, us all. Jesus, speaking of that sacrifice, took the bread of Passover, the Last Supper, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Let's eat together. And he took the cup and he said, this is a covenant in my blood. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we want to just continue to praise you, not just here, but as we leave, that we would just continue to respond and bring praise to you as we live for you in every moment of life. I pray for anyone here today who has not put their faith in what you have done, who have not leaned into your grace completely, that they would put their faith in you and receive what you have to offer. Forgiveness, reconciliation with you, and a future like no other. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.